Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm thrilled to say that this is episode 51. And if you are a happy listener and you've enjoyed the 50 episodes up till now, take a moment and subscribe if you haven't already. And leave a little love on iTunes or wherever you listen. Your positive commentary goes a long way in supporting the work I do and paying it forward. So I thank you. Now let's get to the episode. My guest today is Dr. Nina Silver. She is the author of a book which many consider in the alternative wellness space a comprehensive masterpiece called The Rife Handbook of Frequency Therapy and Holistic Health. In this very in-depth episode, we start with her background and personal journey that brought her to this great birth of a book that has helped hundreds, if not thousands of people all over the world, bringing themselves back to their health and wellness. We explain just how rife frequency works, how we can reframe the body's functioning as it relates to disease. We go into a brief history of the medical system and how it's really transformed over the years from a model of prevention into one that is of disease management. We talk about how rife frequency has helped me in my journey and the difference between, say, rife frequency and other forms of light, even sunlight. This and so much more is covered in this talk. So I really hope you enjoy. And as always, like every episode, it serves you well. Enjoy. Nina Silver, thank you so much for being a guest on the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. I have been very much entrenched in your very thorough, comprehensive book, The Rife Handbook of Frequency Therapy and Holistic Health for quite some time. So I'm just thrilled to be able to share your work with the world and, um, and just learn more from you in this interview. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Diane. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's just jump right in the pot here. And I would be really interested to know a bit about your background and you do go into this in the book. So Perhaps this is more for our listeners, um, but if you could share a, a brief um, background and and as you talk about in your book, your healing path and what led you to finding and discovering rife frequency medicine. Well, it's actually been a very lengthy and circuitous path, Diane. Like many people who have gotten into the health field, uh, I had some health problems that were not responding to allopathic, also known as conventional medicine. And when I was in my 20s, I began a search uh, in health food stores. Uh, I went to see herbalists. I read everything I could 
so that I could heal myself. And that opened up a whole world that I had only dimly sensed existed. So from the, and I was also a performing musician at the time and very interested in energy healing anyway. And in college, I studied physics. So I guess my, <clears throat> my interest in waveforms and energy and music, it, it all kind of dovetailed. In the, I guess it was the 1980s, I met somebody at a health fair in New York City who was working at a Mexican clinic and was using rice therapy for cancer. Now at that time, it was very clandestine. Uh, it, of course, the therapy was not uh, legal to use for medical purposes in the United States. And people who knew about alternatives to the slash and burn chemo radiation uh, poisoning that people got uh, in their treatments in the US, they would go to Mexico and there, along with juicing and herbs and other things, they would use rice therapy. At the time, I, I sensed that this was vitally important, but the, peop the person who was representing the clinic at this health fair wasn't really able to tell, tell me much about the therapy or he was afraid to, or whether he could not or would not, I don't know, but I kept the information. And then throughout the years, as more information about rice technology surfaced, uh, I was able to put more pieces together. So in the mid 1990s, I uh, started a pamphlet, believe it or not, uh, of maybe 20 pages of therapies to use for rice machines. And it ultimately evolved into the 1100 page book that you have today. Wow. And that book took you, I believe, eight years to write. Is that correct? Well, its earliest incarnation was over 20 years ago. So yeah. it, it has had six printings and several different editions. So like you and I and everybody else, the book evolved as well. Yes. Uh, in my travels, I met somebody who actually built Rife machines. And he asked me to test one. And once I did, I was hooked. Mm. And of course, there's a much larger picture here. It's not just using frequencies for healing cancer, but it's a lifestyle. It entails an understanding of the human body as the energy system. It involves a lot. Yeah. Well, I would love to just read for a moment from the foreword from your book by Steve uh, halt and Haltewanger. Yes. And it's such a potent excerpt, which to me sets the stage for a much deeper truth and why many of us look by the necessity or simply are guided to look deeper. 
um, in service to our health and wellness, why we go down these paths that we do. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. And I'm just going to read it here for our listeners. And he says, medicine is a cult. Just as religion has its catechism, medicine has a set of credos based on faith. The faith says that if you take a pharmaceutical, it will fix everything. But this is a delusion. Pharmaceuticals do not heal. In order for true healing to take place, you need raw materials, amino acids, fatty acids, minerals, vitamins. Otherwise, cells do not work. Tissue cannot be restored and symptoms will not abate. They will never abate, not unless the body is given the chance to fix itself. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I just love that's the forward to your book because to me that just sums it all up. Yes, it does. Hmm. Can you give a brief education for those that are not familiar with Royal Raymond Rife, who is the key inventor of the universal microscope and made, which made pathogens visible and how he found a way to bombard them with electrons in a vacuum and destroy them. That's one aspect of his work, of course. And I'd love if you could just go into some of the key points uh, of Royal Raymond Rife and why that matters. Well, I think I'll start uh, by telling people first what a Rife machine is. I'll get to the punchline first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, a rice machine is any equipment that uses a frequency generator that will generate the mortal oscillatory rate of a microbe. In other words, it'll output a uh, two hertz, twelve hertz, twenty-four hertz, hertz a cycle per second. 27, 20 hertz, uh, and those signals are delivered in one of two ways. The first is through a, uh, a closed glass tube that contains uh, noble gases. A noble gas is argon, krypton, neon, xenon either a combination of those gases or one gas. The signal goes into this closed glass tube and it lights up the gases and the gases literally turn into the fourth state of matter, which is plasma. And it's this plasma field that it generates an electromagnetic field and any person or animal who is sitting near this equipment, which is generating the field, if they have a microbe in their body that is corresponding to the signal that's being sent out, the microbe in the host system will become devitalized. Mm. The second way of delivering the frequencies is through electrodes. You have a frequency generator and it's connected by wires and, and the person has to hold on to the electrodes, which are usually cylindrical uh, metal cylinders and they will hold on to the electrodes and a very small 
amount of current will pass from the electrodes into the person's hands, or if they're using foot plates, their feet, and the signal will get into the body that way. So that is a Rife machine, and it's gone through many permutations since Rife's time. What Rife did, you mentioned the universal microscope. He developed a way to see uh, pathogens as small as viruses in their living state. And that's actually quite a neat trick because uh, most uh, microscopes that are able to see viruses, which are so tiny, are electron microscopes, and you have to kill and stain the specimen in order to see it. And Reif didn't want to kill the specimen. He wanted to look at it in its natural environment and subject it to various um, ingredients or signals such as electricity, magnetism, whatever, to see how they responded to what he was uh, exposing them to. You see, he figured, Diane, that if he could uh, look at a, micro, a microbe in its natural state and see how it responded to various stimuli, he could also find a, a way to kill it. And right. that's exactly what happened. Once he was able to filter these microbes, put them in Petri dishes, uh, uh, grow them, he was, a, he was able to expose them to his first, what, what roughly I'm calling a rife machine. And then he would know exactly the kind of signal he needed to kill them. Mm. So this signal is non-invasive. It doesn't harm the human or animal host, but it will harm the pathogen. And it's an elegant and pretty painless way of devitalizing or outright destroying microbes. And needless to say, the medical establishment did not like this one bit because uh, it directly competed with toxic drugs, surgery, and uh, noxious uh, chemicals and other invasive processes. For sure. Just back to the looking at pathogens under a microscope, I didn't know that you had to kill a pathogen to be able to look at look at it. it like I think of live blood analysis, are they are they seeing pathogens that are alive when they're looking at it? Well, oh, live blood analysis is uh, the viewing of uh, red blood under a dark field microscope you're seeing blood and if the pathogens are really, really huge, you yeah. can probably see them, but you can't see viruses. And uh, it, it's live blood analysis is a way of uh, determining the condition of the blood. Okay. Um, for instance, is the red, are the red blood cells healthy and round or which means that they're getting enough oxygen and they have a very decent electrical charge, or are they stacked together like coins, in which case they right. are lacking in oxygen and electrical charge. And when you look at live blood, you can tell if a person is 
disposed towards being sick or if they are disposed towards being healthy. You can also see some bacteria in live blood. You can see the lymphocytes, white blood cells. You can see how mobile all of the tissue, all of the cells are, and if the white blood cells are doing their job. So you can tell a, a great deal by looking at live blood if a person is sick. But if you want to view a, a really tiny pathogen, it has always been the case that if you're using an electron microscope, which up until very recently, it was the, was the only way to see a virus, you do have to kill it. You're bombarding it with electrons in a vacuum. That's what an electron microscope is. Mm. Now I say up until very recently because there is a microscope now that has come out of Germany that uses different principles of magnification and illumination than Rice microscope did, but you can see viruses in their living state. But that's a very recent development. So back in the late 1920s and 30s, the only game in town for seeing like pathogens was Rice microscope. Hmm. Well, thanks for clarifying that. I didn't know that. Sure. You know, many people may be unaware of the history of the medical system or institution that formed and dictate how much of how we treat illness today. And you've touched upon that. How and when did medicine in America shift from its early emphasis on prevention and health to a model of disease management? Well, I think it's been a gradual shift. It didn't happen one week or one year when all of a sudden all the midwives got banned from being in hospitals and the homeopaths got banned from medical school. But there, there has been a, I'd, I'd say actually from the 1800s at, at least uh, when medicine and doctoring uh, came out of the hands of your local village herbalist who is usually a woman though not always and midwives and it became very, medicine became very systematized and formalized and there was a whole class system where certain people were allowed to attend attend medical school and certain people were not but the, i one of the most cited um events what is um, in, in the early 1900s when the AMA um, formed the Council on Medical Education and uh, they basically industrialized medicine. Uh, there's the, a famous or I should say infamous Flexner report that favored medical schools that emphasize the use of pharmaceuticals. Right. Um, there is the Merck manual that I'm sure every doctor that's gone into allopathic medicine has been trained to draw from, from at least my understanding, that's kind of a standard or it has been a standard, the Merck manual. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's, well, 
Yeah, the Merck manual and the D, D, um, DSM, DSM, right? Which is a diagnostic. Um, but basically, when when you have politicians in the mix who are either industrialist billionaires themselves or aligned or associated with the millionaire and billionaire industrialists, um, you're going to get a medical. Um, you're going to get medicine legislated heavily that's based not on science, but on politics. And that's exactly what happened. Um, for instance, in 1905, there were 160 medical schools, but by 1927, uh, that number had dropped to 80. Mm. What's more, uh, homeopathy, which actually had been used for centuries, well, centuries, um, ever since uh, Samuel Hahnemann uh, discovered it, it had been used by the British royalty and uh, some quite prominent politicians and billionaires themselves, but they didn't want it available to the masses. Mm. And so homeopathy, which operates on a vibrational principle, that was also discredited and discouraged. So it, it had it, it's not like I can't say, oh well, there was one event or a certain year that the discrediting of natural medicines took place. It's a continual battle, especially okay. today when you look at what's going on in the world when people are being denied access to information, for right. instance, that could easily cure the flu, any type of flu or viral infection in three to five days. Right, right. Informed consent no longer exists or maybe it never existed completely from that system. Well, maybe we could shift gears just ever so slightly. And you mentioned in your book why being linear about a holistic system brings with it lots of challenges that basically demonstrate why human beings are difficult to classify as it relates to disease. And you, and you mentioned how the entire body, which I thought was really interesting, how the entire body is the immune system. It's not just the lymph, lymph nodes, the lymph, lymphocytes, mm. the lymph or the bone marrow and the thymus. And and also, you mentioned in this little section here, how we can even reframe how we look at the heart, for example. And as you mentioned, it's not just an organ, but it's also made up of muscle fiber, which many people know, but it also secretes a hormone and is, uh, uh, is a 65% of it is nerve cells, which are receptive to neurotransmitters which we used to believe belong to the brain. Right. I did not know that. And well, yeah. that, that, these, these little tidbits of knowledge that scientists are now learning, they put the whole classification of the human body, it, they stand it on its head, be, no pun intended. Sure, right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, 
that made it a little hard for me to classify uh, disease and body function, especially when I was writing chapter five. But you know, most people know the heart, uh, know about the heart, and think about it as a pump. So I left those classifications alone. But I did put that at the beginning of chapter five, just so people know that we're much more complicated than we ever dreamed. Right. Um, now it's been known for, I don't know, at least a dozen years, I think, that the bulk of the neurotransmitters are also made in the gut. You know, the gut being referred to as the second brain. Right. We have the expression gut feelings. I have butterflies in my stomach. This doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and we now know that uh, the gut has a very rich uh, plexus of nerve cells. Um, but, you know, I think as, uh, as we continue to unravel the mysteries of the human body, we will find that there are more and more overlapping functions and that it's a little hard to say, well, this happens only here or that happens only in that part of the body. I mean, right. If you look at the brain, uh, there are so many uh, clinical accounts of uh, people who had brain surgery and presumably the function that was the domain of whatever portion of the brain had to be excised or burned away, suddenly that function got picked up by other parts of the brain. Mm. And we know, for instance, um, uh, certain uh, people with certain types of Asperger's that huge portions of the brain are developed so highly and specifically that it's almost as though they have superpowers. Oh my gosh. I have a, a, an old yoga client from years ago and I remember I go to his house and um, he's actually a pretty famous guy. I won't mention who it is, but his son, I believe has a form of Asperger's and he has now become a very, I think, established, uh, well-known artist. And I, I think he's maybe in his 20s at, at, uh, now, but he can, his, his drawings are astonishing. He will take, uh, he will look at, say, a map of New York City, and he has this sort of photographic memory, even more so, where he will replicate that but in an artistic way and all the streets will line up exactly as if you were looking at a map that you just pulled out from a magazine shop. It's astonishing. I don't know if this is the same young man, but I was, uh, <clears throat> I was going to mention uh, uh, somebody who has uh, several videos on YouTube. They take him up in a helicopter and he takes a quick look around mm. and they put him in a room and he does a 360 degree rendering yeah. of what he saw down and it's totally accurate. It's as though you're looking at a photograph. 
it might down to, down to the number of windows on the building. Yes, it might be the same guy. And but, um, yeah, you know this this speaks to me of how normal. You know, it's popularly assumed that there is a certain very narrow range of normality. Right. X is normal or Y is normal. And, you know, say people like this young artist and, you know, he's given a, what I think is a derogatory label. Right. Because the minute you call something autism or Asperger's or whatever, you're medicalizing something and you're not looking at the gifts that the person can bring. And another example is Temple Grandin, who I mentioned in chapter three of my book, mm -hmm. she, she invented an amazingly humane way of slaughtering cattle where they are completely calm. They don't have to be subjected to stun guns. They're not afraid when they're killed. They don't have an outpouring of noxious adrenaline yeah. that goes into their body and then their muscles, which we eat, you know, those of us who do eat meat. And, um, you know, and I'm not saying that people who are given labels of medicalized conditions, I'm not saying that they don't have challenges, but so do so-called normal people. Yes. And by medicalizing in an incorrect way, uh, certain ways that people have of thinking and expressing themselves, we do not only them a great disservice, but we do so-called normals a disservice as well, because Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what normal is. Do you? No, no. It and it depends who you're hanging out with. It's like <laughs> that's true, <laughs> right? And and uh, I know to some of my friends, I'm like a ball of laughs, and then you know, to another group, they might think I'm too much and I'm I'm kooky. So <laughs> you know, it just that's depends true. who I'm talking to. And, and I totally agree with you. It's like we are in our misunderstanding or in our ignorance or not knowing the the incredible nature that is the human body, this multidimensional system of being human, human, God, man, we are many of us are conditioned to just set people up for limitation with these labels, these titles like autism when we don't even fully understand what that is really <laughs> right now i think there is such a thing as lousy digestion and heavy metals in the brain both yes. of which have been very prominently uh, implicated in autism which yes. prevents people from functioning but that is very different than saying uh, somebody is autistic. So Agreed. I think we need to be very careful in how we describe a not optimally functioning system or 
a system that is contaminated with endogenous or exogenous toxicants that prevent the person from feeling good. And that's what we need to focus on. And I think the reason it's so important to understand these distinctions is that the medical model itself is very limiting. I have a disease or I am a diabetic mm-hmm. or my cancer. First of all, I would never own my cancer and make it mine. I just think it, we, I think it can be very weakening and it doesn't do an, give anybody an advantage. And people who identify so completely with their illnesses, they're not, that framing it like that doesn't allow them to tap into alternatives of healing, including alternatives of thinking, which could help them heal. And of course, it's no accident, you know, the whole medical industry, you know, it is an industry, which is uh, a, a desecration, but the whole medical industry is geared toward dehumanizing people, uh, separating their body parts into unrelated components and saying, well, you need a drug for this and you need a drug for that. And then you need a third drug to counteract the so-called side effects of the first two drugs. And before you know it, everybody is looking at themselves compartmentalized. Yeah. Medicine is a business. And I just think as you're talking, it brings me back to when I gave birth to my son in the hospital. And the first thing they want to do, of course, is they want to give him a bath. And I see what they're giving him a bath with. And it's this company that will go unnamed, but we can all imagine, uh, (laughs) we pontificate on what that company is that's made lots of soaps and shampoos and done many a commercial on it over the years. And I'm looking at the ingredients of this, you know, name brand baby shampoo, and it's just laden with polysorbate 80, uh, all these, uh, yellow number 40 all kinds of crap yeah that's the first <laughs> thing that's going to touch my my son's skin uh welcome to planet earth okay great <laughs> you know thank you and this just that that to me is such uh so emblematic of this profound disconnect that it's like people are just okay with that because it's just become, it's just, it is, it's just, they, they don't look, they don't read labels. They don't care. I don't know why. And why are they have them in the hospital? Well, because they're, they have a, um, a deal with that company. So right. it's a business, uh, you know, back to your point on uh, owning our diseases and, and um, how that isn't serving us. I, I totally agree with that. And it also makes me think of how you reframe and talk about arthritis even, which is how many, I mean, we all know somebody that has arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. And I love how you expand on how properly functioning joint joints, they don't degenerate. 
that's not a thing. But we just accept, again, as a conditioning that as we get older, we, oh, this is just what happens. I'm old and I need a knee replacement. That's not how things are supposed to be. That's not how our ancestors um, right. evolved and, and went through their, their lifetime, their lifespan. Well, I never wanted to accept limitations. Uh, I admit to the point where sometimes I'm not realistic, but I, I would rather be more idealistic and open to possibilities than to keep uh, shuttering myself into a tiny little box and accepting pronouncements from others about what is and what is not possible. I mean, Reif, uh, the inventor, he went way out of the box mm -hmm. and he figured out what may be possible. And he brought an enormously valuable healing technology to the world. Um, I wanted to mention, you know, this is a kind of free association here. Yeah. But, you know, I know that a lot of um, probably most, if not everybody who listens to your podcasts um, are open to and eager to learn about um, other ways of healing, more natural ways that respect the body and all these possibilities. And if your audience is like me in this respect, I'm, and I'm sure you're like this too. We all know people who are absolutely closed to possibilities. And we think, well, you know, I'm giving them all the facts. I'm laying it all out. Uh, why can't they get it? Yeah. You know, what is preventing people from making that leap? And I've been thinking a lot about this because I think in today's world, which is becoming more and more polarized. Yes. Um, I see a real splitting of frequency occur. And what I mean by that is people are literally resonating kind of in different places. You know, we may share the same geographical locale, we may look at the world and see similar objects in our environment. But I think spiritually, there is a real separation right now that's occurring. And my, uh, my book is intended for people who are open to possibilities, but I have had to personally accept the fact that some people of whom I am very fond, in fact, somehow don't have it in their spiritual template, in their energy field, put in your own favorite phrase to actually get what is going on around us. And so I have come to accept more and more that there is pretty much nothing I can say to people who are determined to keep themselves in little boxes. Right. 
it's not just a mental openness or being a question of being open-minded. I think it is actually much deeper also on an energetic level. And I am just delighted to remind myself that, you know, there are people who are um, not only metaphorically, but literally vibrating on the same wavelength. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, you know, it's nice to see that people uh, are building their own communities of like-minded people where we're not buying into or doing our best not to buy into the fear and the agitation that is so obviously swelling around us. Yeah, I agree. I, to add to that, I, I completely echo your sentiments on that. And I do think it runs way deeper than some superficial, just misunderstanding or preferences of how we perceive things. I do think it's a spiritual um, happening. And I think of those that aren't open and at least those that I know that I are some are people that are very close to me or um, family members and uh, relatives and friends. And I think, well, kind of like the forward in your book, I feel like it sometimes requires like an, an, an event to happen happening in their life where mm -hmm. they have to get so sick and have gone down the rabbit hole of exhausting all the known usual suspects. <laughs> and then they go, none of this has worked. Where else can I look? And it is a spiritual quest. It mm -hmm. becomes something much deeper and, and, they start to um, open their eyes to a, a greater uh, perceptual lens of what this life is about and really not, and who they are and what they are capable of. But I think until you're given that sort of stimulus or that why, they, most people will probably just go along the same, same old, same old. And um, until something wakes them up out of their, you know, their stupor, and, um, and they change course because of necessity, because any other way just is unlivable for them. It's just, there is no other way, but a different way. <laughs> right. Um, well, I wrote, I wrote the Rife Handbook. Um, I mean, it has a lot of different levels in it. When I, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, it started as a pamphlet and mostly it was the frequencies that I found were most helpful uh, to use for things like respiratory infections, uh, certain pathogens that get into the digestive tract and cause diarrhea, uh, cancer, even frequencies for pain, things like that. But when I continued to investigate the technology, I realized that we can't just turn on a piece of equipment and expose ourselves to the frequencies via electrodes or a energy field emitted by a plasma tube and expect, boom, we're going to get better. 
if we don't change our lifestyle. So I was always very interested in diet and how food affects us. So I began adding things to this pamphlet of frequencies right. about diet and supplements and herbs. And then I thought, well, I should throw in a history of rife and how we came to develop this so people understand the historical context, context and they don't think it's so weird. And then later on, I added Appendix C, which is free for download on my website, which is uh, healing with electromedicine and sound therapies to give people an overview and explain how and why electromedicine works. And actually, we've been using electromedicine, whether it's heat, a light, magnetism, electrical current, since the 1800s. This mm. is not new. But anyhow, my book became this enormous, enormous uh, reference guide. And one of the things I wanted to include was the role of emotions in illness. Yes. And also the spiritual component. And people don't often mention chapter six, but I was fascinated with the topics of long distance healing and the power of intention. You know, we go back to just what we were talking about before, how we literally change our perspective and things come to us that we might not have imagined. Right. So there is so much, about, not only about healing, but about how to think, you know, the role of, um, the role of thought processes, how advertising affects perception. I mean, I guess you could say, I have the kitchen sink in this book, but I think the point that I'm trying to make, and I guess a pretty long winded way is that I really wanted to give people who are open to it, not only uh, information about healing in a general sense, but um, specifics that and enough uh, scientific research so that it could appeal not just to the uh, emotional or right brain, but to the analytic and left brain. And yeah. perhaps there are people who are on the fence about things that will say, oh, this is, this is a lot of journal articles and even medical journal articles. Hey, maybe there's something to all this. Yeah. So while I'm not going to try and uh, try and convince somebody who's really, say, um, very invested in one particular way of thinking, uh, people who are more open and if they do have family members, you know, as you mentioned, you do, who might be on the fence or Maybe they won't buy the whole nine yards, but they'll say, oh, well, if I have the flu, I can take zinc and I can take quercetin, which is a bioflavonoid, to mm -hmm. 
to drive the zinc into the cells. And right. because zinc prevents the virus from replicating, maybe I'll feel better. So I put a lot of stuff in there in that book so that people can get really practical tips. So even if they think, oh, well, this rife machine, that's really too wild for me, you know, they can also benefit by doing rather simple things. And you can get most of these supplements, at least for now, at a health food store. For sure. I just think of myself as the um, guinea pig because anything like a rife machine or biofuel tuning or a, a particular food or an herb, I'm going to try it out and have the direct experience first to see if it actually works, if there's efficacy. And I could say with the Rife machine that I was using, um, I was just, I was doing it religiously, um, two machines actually together mm -hmm. uh, twice a week for about six months straight. And within three months, um, I decided, uh, I decided after I, I was, um, I was training in all these different forms of energy medicine and biofield tuning with Eileen McCusick, who's one of my mentors. And, and I remember being in a training one day and we all kind of circled up and she said, we were all sharing our, our, our daily aha moments and all that, and it got to be my turn in the circle. And I said, well, you know, so I have, you know, Hashimoto's and, and she goes, uh, uh, I, I watch what you declare for yourself because maybe yeah. it's something that you no longer resonate with and you're going to let it dissolve. And I just, for whatever reason, it just clicked that day. And I decided I became committed to finding a way to heal my thyroid. And I decided intuitively, it was kind of, revving up inside of me. And I said, I just didn't feel right taking this pharmaceutical. Now I know many people listening might do that. And I, I don't have no judgment. It's, it's really what works for you. Right. But for me, I just had a burning desire to change that. And it didn't feel right for me anymore. As my frequency was getting raised, I, uh, things were dropping away. And it was showing up on a physical level where literally my blood um, would change. When you go look at like a, a pathogen um, level, it goes down to zero after mm -hmm. doing rife machine uh, treatment. And so I ended up getting a machine myself and, and uh, it, it, I ended up healing my thyroid to such a degree that the head of endocrinology at a major hospital here in California head of endocrinology, head of the endocrinology department. I went in there and my, I may have shared this in a different podcast. I don't remember, but my heart was pounding so fast out of my chest. I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. And I knew I didn't need this medicine anymore because I felt like I was a crack addict. felt like I was on cocaine. <laughs> and I said, I don't need this anymore. And she took my pulse and she, her, her, her eyes got wide and she said, um, I'm going to call down uh, for an emergency uh, six baby aspirin. You shouldn't have this rapid of a pulse. 
And, uh, and I, and she said, you know, you don't need this anymore. And I said, why has it taken 20 years for me to hear a doctor say that I can get off this? She said, well, your levels were up and down. I said, yeah, because my immune system was all, you know, verklempt from toxins, all kinds of invaders. And once you get rid of that, the thyroid starts getting back online. And of course it was like, I'm speaking Japanese and she just kind of shaked her head. But the long and short of it is I ended up getting off that medicine and I now take a very small amount of natural thyroid and it, and it works for me and I've been able to stabilize. I did that with Rife and I was on medicine for 20 years, this particular medicine. So I don't know. I'm a walking example that there's been a shift on a physical level. So there are many <clears throat> shifts that scores of people report when, when they really give themselves to rife therapy and are willing to change their lifestyle so that they have a truly natural approach to health. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just, you're talking about your story, Diane, um, reminded me that uh, pathogens can be involved in anything, not only say the urinary system or uh, cardiovascular, but also what we consider uh, mental disorders uh, because you have all these um, microbes uh, excreting their waste materials into the body. They pass the blood brain barrier. And then you have people who uh, have serious behavior and emotional issues. And what is really going on is that they're heavily toxified. Yes. And it's amazing how many body systems uh, can be made dysfunctional by pathogens, including the bone and the skeletal system, because you have certain pathogens that eat cartilage, uh, the glandular system, the eyes and ears, uh, the respiratory tract, anything you can think of. So it's worth looking at it from a pathogen and toxin approach. It can't hurt you. No. What do you feel proliferates pathogens the most? I, I know it might be a combination of things and you mentioned sugar, oxygen levels, heavy metals and pH. And just according to your research, how do you perceive a pathogen's behavior and growth or another way? I think, I think it really depends on the person. Okay. I, can't, I can't give you a single answer to that. I mean, we do know that lowered voltage or lowered energy in the cells also means lowered oxygen and most microbes are anaerobic. They thrive in the, in the absence of oxygen. We also know that emotions, uh, negative emotions, release stress hormones and the stress hormones lower 
immune response, and they also change the pH level of certain parts of the body. I'm not going to say the blood because once the blood pH deviates within a very narrow uh, band, poof, you're dead. So you can't say the body's pH because the stomach has a high pH, the bloodstream has a different pH, et cetera. Right. Um, but there are all kinds of things. Um, unfortunately, I think that we're at a point in humanity's development where there are so many bioengineered pathogens that have been re deliberately created and released into the environment that even healthy people are having a hard time managing these pathogens. One of them is the Lyme spirochete. Mm -hmm. And this is not new. You know, people have known this for 15 years. I do mention it in my book. But, you know, if, if you're, you're looking at a bacterium that is so awful that it can bore into bone. This is the Lyme? That's Lyme. Mm. You know, and that's why people have bone pain oh. sometimes. Okay. <clears throat> so... You know, so we're looking, we're looking at microbes that have not even existed. We're looking at chemicals that didn't exist even 40 or 50 years ago. Right. Um, we're looking at, um, say, glyphosate or Roundup that's sprayed on crops and it literally changes the ability of the gut to process certain proteins mm. and it changes our DNA. So we're talking about highly unnatural substances that are doing their best to alter our DNA. Mm. So I don't think that humankind has had to fight this hard ever. You have this assault on our systems, um, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually from uh, non-organically raised food, uh, fluoridated and chlorinated water, uh, 5G and even 4G cell yeah. phone towers, I mean, I could go on and on and on, and it's it it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah. And I do mention I do mention all of this in my book, along with uh, ways of protecting ourselves. So, for me personally, and this might other others might find this too as well. My goal at this time is to try and live as clean and honest a life as possible, uh, protecting myself while at the same time, finding things that give me joy and pleasure. Mm -hmm. We are at a, really, a real crossroads here. Uh, 
And I think, as you mentioned a little while ago, we really have to make a choice, you know, which side do we want to be on? Yeah. I think of how much we can benefit just from the light of the sun, natural solar light, especially in the morning. I just talked about this on another podcast with a wonderful Ayurvedic uh, doctor, Marian Teitelbaum, and she talks about this, how melatonin, we get that from the sun through our retina in the morning. And, uh, and you talk about melatonin in, in your book quite a bit, and especially how coffee uh, prevents that production of melatonin or alters it. Um, my question is around rife therapy, around mm-hmm. that light treatment, can you replicate solar light from the sun and get the benefits of like cellular photosynthesis through rife? Um, The short answer is no. Sunlight is a combination of many, 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 many different wavelengths and uh, frequencies. With Rife therapy, you're taking one delivery packet of a particular frequency and uh, targeting one particular aspect, which is generally the devitalization of pathogens. That said, however, there are some frequencies that um, do not target pathogens and make it difficult for them to enter the human cell, but rather they restore the energy in human tissue. One of those frequencies is 40,000 Hertz. Uh, For many years, the uh, rifers or people in the rife community had been using 10,000 Hertz. And that's a good number. It's a good frequency to use, but 40,000 is even better. And I make a point of stating this in several places in chapter five. Uh, When I was uh, in Toronto, about um, 12 years ago, I was doing a a three-day health fair. And there there were thousands of people who were passing my booth where I was selling books and uh, a friend's um, Rife machine was running. And it it was set to 40,000 Hertz. Now I would never be in a public place or, and uh, subject people to pathogen frequencies because you don't know how they'd respond. If they're not drinking enough water, there might be die off and they might have unpleasant uh, subjective experience. But 40,000 Hertz is a really good frequency because it normalizes the cell membrane it allows nutrients in and it allows weights to leave. And I was working from about 8.30 in the morning to 8.30 at night. And I was as refreshed by the end of the day as I was when I began. And that rice machine was on the whole time with 40,000 hertz. Mm. Now, I think that Royal Rife himself knew that there was a certain regenerative quality 
to some of the frequencies he used, but he was working with uh, doctors in the mainstream community, and he was trying to get his technology accepted. So this is just my sense of it. I don't have any proof of it, but Rife was so smart. I don't think that he could not have known that he was also helping to restore cellular function. Right. Um, but he didn't focus on that. He, he focused on uh, uh, devitalizing the cancer virus. He had frequencies for anthrax and um, about a dozen E. coli and about a dozen more pathogens. Does the Rife machine, and I know we don't have all of what he was using. We can't replicate everything because it's been lost or confiscated. But can we heal, say, for example, cancer like he did quite quickly and seemingly efficiently in a short amount of short duration of time, maybe weeks or months, I imagine, in some cases, but obviously we can't do that now. Is it because of mutations that cancer is mutated so much now that it's, it takes longer? That's a really good question. I think part of the reason, well, um, a main reason is that Rife was using really high frequencies and at the time, after several years, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, went to him and they said, hey, look, uh, you're using these really high frequencies and they're interfering with our radio broadcasts. Oh. So you can't use them anymore. And because of that, uh, different means of delivery had to be devised to get uh, the same devitalization function into the human body to affect the microbes. That was when the electrode unit uh, first uh, came to be invented. Um, now, most now because we can't use those high frequencies, um, and I have these formulas in my book, we divide the really high frequencies by two until we get into the range of the equipment. However, you can use those really high frequencies if you use electrodes. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, um, part of it's because uh, for the most part, we need to use uh, subharmonics of Rife's orig original frequencies. Part of it may indeed be, be, be due to mutations. And I think part of it is that people now are just sicker mm. than they were in his times. I mean, he was, his doctor colleagues were treating people in the 1930s and the 1940s. They didn't have Roundup. Even the wheat and the bread that they were using was less hybridized right. with, with fewer, um, with fewer DNA strands. Mm. So it had less gluten. Their diet was healthier. They had access to raw milk. It wasn't ultra pasteurized, which changes the 
molecular structure of the milk and makes it a poison. Uh, they were eating more fresh foods. They didn't have TV dinners. Um, they had less stress overall. Uh, they had, they didn't quite have the better living through chemistry that we have today. You know, they had fewer toxic chemicals. I mean, it was an entirely different world. Do, do you think cancer, well, let me back it up a bit. I, I remember I was teaching a retreat probably a decade ago in India, and I would always have different guests be a part of the you know, uh, experience. And one of those speakers or guests was this homeopathic energy frequency healer. He would use a dowsing rod and he was one of the um, nine disciples that was very close to Osho when he was alive. And he was an incredible man, a very gentle man. I don't even remember his name. And I don't even think he was very, very old at the time. I don't even know if he's still living. And it was a, even a miracle that I was able to locate him. But the point is, uh, he was clearing the whole group one at a time from the toxins, um, from Fukushima that had happened um, back then that had moved, the clouds carried over the radiation and it poured on the West coast. And mm -hmm. we got some of that. And I remember he gave me a healing and it was a good thing that the retreat hadn't started yet because I literally slept for like 15 hours uninterrupted after his treatment. But I remember talking to him at length and we were, I was just kind of grilling him on all things. And he believed that cancer was a parasite. What do you believe cancer is? Um, cancer, well, Reif believed that cancer was a virus and he actually isolated it. He would take tumors from uh, rats and he would then put pieces of the tumorous tissue in healthy rats and it would grow. He would put uh, tumors in uh, petri dishes and the virus would grow. He, he filtered the virus. Um, there was somebody else, um, the scientist's name escapes me, but I talk about him in chapter two, the history and inventions of rice and the New York Times actually did an obituary on this scientist. I think he died in the 70s and he talked about a cancer virus. And there were several other scientists, um, one or two who actually knew Rife, who also said that cancer is a virus. Now you'll have, there are other pieces to this because cancerous tissue is much lower in voltage or energy than normal tissue. Okay, uh, right. It, there is a lack of oxygen in these tissues. So you could say that everything correlates to everything else, but I think that once you get rid of the pathogen involvement and you kill the virus, you can then help the body because it won't be 
trying to get rid of this virus. You know, in other words, there's so much toxic waste from the virus and it keeps growing and growing. But if you give the body a rest where it doesn't have to fight the virus anymore, then you can address things like energy levels, restoring nutrients, that kind of thing. So as soon as you take a pathogen that's proliferating out of the equation, you can lessen the burden of the body and then it can heal. Hmm. Do, do you believe that cancer is something that's been around for since the beginning of time? Or do you think it's something that's arrived in our modern era? Well, there, there have been reports, early reports of cancer existing even in ancient Greece and Egypt. So I don't think it was unheard of. However, I think the... Um, I think the American Cancer Society, I think they predicted one out of two people would get cancer. So it's certainly proliferating and our food and toxins, or I should say fake foods and (laughs) toxins and how we live and all that, that's certainly not helping. For sure. I don't know if it's possible to completely eliminate all disease forever. But I think that at the very least, people could have a much better quality of life and a longer life. For sure. I just think of what I read in your book around alcohol and like coffee. It's so widely advertised. It's a part of society, part of culture, right? Every TV show you watch, they're either drinking a cup of coffee or they're having a cocktail. Right. And and then uh, I just want to read this little snippet from your book because it got me rethinking what my glass of once in a while red wine is. (laughs) And you say, as for alcohol, reframing this legal drug as a toxin offers a different perspective from how it's ordinarily viewed. Alcoholic beverages are produced when a fruit or grain is allowed to ferment. During the fermentation process, which by definition takes place in the absence of oxygen, the yeast feeds on the food sugars and excretes the desired alcohol. But alcohol is actually a waste product. Yeast poop. (laughs) It's rapid metabolization by the body can cause liver damage. And alcohol interrupts the transmission of signals across neurons which people experience as intoxication and for the most part consider enjoyable. But you had me at yeast poop, poop, Nina. (laughs) I mean. (laughs) I'm sure people in Great Britain who enjoy their beer on tap uh, won't like, (laughs) won't thank me for that. Um, I guess in some ways I'm a purist. You know, alcohol is yeast poop. Um, I think somebody who's healthy, who has a glass of beer or enjoys a cup of coffee once in a while, you know, it's not going to hurt them. But keep in mind, I wrote my book for people who, for the most part, are sick and are looking for answers. And I think for the most part, Um, 
you know, I still stand behind what I say about alcohol. And yes, I know that dark beer has a lot of B vitamins, things like that. And there are plenty of articles, even in medical journals, <clears throat> where um, coffee is said to uh, help with cognition and memory. Yeah, and, and ward off Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Right, now see the problem is, well, I always wonder, did the coffee industry fund these studies? Because I looked at some of these journal articles and I couldn't find it. Mm. Um, the other thing about coffee too, and I know that, you know, even some respected holistic physicians uh, tout how coffee in moderation can be very helpful. But I just see how so many people, um, well, take adrenal stress. The adrenal glands are very sensitive to stress. And I discuss this at length in my book, but uh, the summary is that if you are in a state of continual stress over a period of time, your body was not meant to keep excreting hormones that put you in a fight or flight position. Right. We're not meant to do that. You know, in the olden days, in the, during the, uh, you know, cave person era, you know, you'd um, ward off lions, <laughs> you know, you'd ward off saber tooth tigers or whatever, and then the danger would be over. Yeah. But here, especially in, in these times, it's stress upon stress upon stress, and it doesn't let up. Mm. And what happens? Your adrenals quit. They stop producing the hormones that they're supposed to, and then you're in real trouble. And then what a lot of people do is they drink coffee as a way of getting energy, but it's a, force, it's a way of forcing your body to give you a boost that it can't. And so you're actually wrecking your adrenals even more. So I don't think personally that the justification of, oh, coffee helps with Parkinson's and this and that and the other thing, I don't think that's a good enough reason for most people to drink coffee. Yeah. You mentioned, and I think anyone that I know some people that drink coffee because it's diuretic, it helps them go to the bathroom and they say it helps control their weight. And then I come upon this one bit in your book around coffee and you say caffeine, you quote, caffeine raises blood pressure more than four points and contributes to weight gain around the middle. This is because excess sympathetic nerve stimulation causes a numbing effect on fat cells in the abdominal area, leading to excess weight gain around the middle. In such situations, caffeine is making adrenaline resistance worse. I mean, there you go. Thank you for that, because um, there's so much material in that book, I can't possibly remember it all. So I'm glad you read that excerpt. Oh, it's chock full. And I think you mentioned even with your own personal journey, if I'm correct, I think it took you four years to reset 
your system from drinking coffee. Is that right? Right. I'm pretty sensitive to um, chemicals and caffeine. You know, I have a really hard time with it personally. Me too. Um, no, not that I don't enjoy chocolate once in a while, but if I, if I eat it, I eat it in the morning. Otherwise, I'm up. Everybody has strengths and weaknesses in their constitution. Some people can handle caffeine. Some people can't. Uh, some people do better with alcohol than others. What I try to do in my book is offer the range of information and have the reader tailor it to himself or herself to see what they can safely ingest or do and what they cannot. You know, I, as a rule, the sicker the person is, I think the more they need to um, uh, eat clean food and be careful. And if for people with cancer or Lyme disease, or uh, recurring viral infections, they need to really, really be very conscious about uh, what they eat. Uh, also, if somebody has arthritis, which itis is simply inflammation, uh -huh. you know, they, they need to know uh, the cause and what can contribute and what can possibly uh, alleviate their symptoms. Mm -hmm. I think that that's partly why my book is so many pages because health really is not simple. And while I can appreciate and do read myself books that are kind of a one size fits all, I'm giving you a, just one topic in 200 pages, there's also a disadvantage because you're not getting the big picture. So I try and do both in my book. I've gone to original source materials. I've read really good books such as Wheat Belly, uh, which talks about the dangers of wheat. And I've synthesized it in a program so that people can pick and choose what they need and what they might benefit from. It, it's quite a task, but if you're ill, I think it's really worth it because why, um, you know, instead of uh, relying on doctors and just taking pills, you know, do what you, Diane, did and, you know, think for yourself and decide what you need and what you don't need. And I think most people are really a lot better at it than they give themselves credit for. All you have to do is um, be armed with some information and be willing to uh, take into account your empirical experience. That's right. Nobody can take away your direct experience, you, you as your own, own study and uh, as a, your own citizen, being an own citizen scientist. <laughs> That's what I've done. And uh, 
I stand firm in it because there is a, there is a very clear before and after. And, um, and it's, 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 it's a lot of stuff and it's been a journey, but I wouldn't want it any other way. And I always think of one teacher who said to me, and I've said this, I share this a lot with some of my um, clients when I do my, my healing work. And I always think of one of my, my mentors and he said, anything that you don't want, any condition you have, any disease that's present, anything, don't ever ask for it to go away. Seek to understand how it got there in the first place. And then you'll be guided how to heal it. And then when you heal it, you'll become the master. And I just love that because I can really relate to that. I feel I can speak from such great depths of my own personal sovereignty, my own knowing of mm -hmm. having been in, at one point A and now I'm at point B. And I can look back and it's, it's, it's a different sunset. <laughs> and uh, it's awesome. And it's very empowering because it's, it's reinforcing that we have the ability to not only find the answers, but the answers are available on this planet in this physical world reality. And we have the ability through our intention to um, be our own miracle makers and heal whatever is seeking to be healed that's ready and willing. That's right. Holistic health, also known as integrative medicine and sometimes alternative medicine, although to me, that's the main medicine and allopathic medicine is alternative. Um, the empowerment that comes from listening to your body is, it's an incredible feeling. And unfortunately, um, kids are deliberately taught not to trust their senses. Yes. And that's why it's sometimes so hard for people to make the leap into integrative medicine because they are not integrated in their own beings. They have been taught to uh, put different parts of themselves into little boxes. Uh, kids are forced to sit still in school instead of running around for the first few years, which is what they need to do. I mean, everything from our food system to our educational system is designed to make, to turn people into obedient automatons. And that might sound harsh, but, um, and I'm not trying to, insult anybody, but we don't have to be, uh, we don't have to be that way. Right. We're better than that. <laughs> We're better than that. Exactly. Uh, there's so many other questions I would love to ask you, but for the sake of time and, and what we're talking about here today, I'd love to just circle back and wrap up around this rife technology, do you believe that this technology, light therapy, frequency therapy, frequency has the power to change the way medicine is ultimately practiced? Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, it's funny because frequencies have given us diagnostic 
equipment, EEGs, EKGs. Yes. Um, if you can use it for diagnosing, you can certainly use it for healing. And as I mentioned earlier, um, electromedicine has been used since the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I have a, there's an appendix in my book that lists original source material, some of which can be found online. It was a fabulous book on electromedicine that was written in the 1940s. Mm. People were still doing it then. Wow. Um, so this, this is not woo-woo. It, it's highly scientific. And I hope everybody goes to my website and downloads Appendix C, Healing with uh, Electromedicine and Sound Therapies, because it gives a wonderful overview of all of these different modalities, electrical current, magnetism, monochromatic light, which you know is lasers. Uh, and you'll see it makes perfect, perfect sense. I do see that Rife and other electromedical uh, protocols will ultimately prevail. Uh, it may be a bit more of a rocky battle mm -hmm. um, involving the pharmaceutical medical cartel. But I think that anybody who wants to be empowered and is still willing to think for themselves will be able to resonate with the possibilities of electromedicine. And I really do have hope for this. It may take a little time. It may take longer than what we would like, but I think it can't be stopped. There, there's too much momentum. There are too many people who have healed themselves using Rife therapy and other electromedical modalities to, to have this, uh, to have these modalities suppressed. Mm. They can't be suppressed any longer. Yeah, and I feel like that's so telling of this time where those systems that have been in play um, that are so limiting, that are not really of the truth, they're, they're dying out. We see them, they're falling by the wayside and the light really does, as corny as it sounds, the light does prevail. And with that comes the goodness, right? With the light where we can heal ourselves with things that are of nature, that are of light, literally. Right. <laughs> so right. no pun intended. And, and I think that's why um, the powers that be right now are fighting so hard to Great. indoctrinate people because yep. more and more people are waking up. And yep. I am really excited that more and more people are waking up. And that's why it's so exciting for me to be talking to you. Yeah. Nina, thank you so much for your time. Uh, your um, plethora of knowledge, which is just astounding. And if anyone questions that, just go pick up this Bible of a book, this handbook, the Rife Handbook of Frequency Therapy and Holistic Health. It's, it's a real treasure. And, um, and you are doing your true ministry here for humanity. So thank you again. Thank you, Daniel. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. 
If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.